From Hong Kong, Chicago, and the city of Stoke-on-Trent, this is the Classic Lenses Podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 81. My name is Simon Forster, and I'm joined by Johnny Sisson and Perry G. Hello, Johnny. Hello. And hello, Perry. Hello. Well, I've got to say, I'm glad to be back. Hopefully, I won't succumb to a connection failure like we did last week. Um, I've got to say, it was it was slightly surreal uh, to to listen to the to the show without being able to change its direction and shout at you guys. But, uh, but but on a completely different note, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about lobster sandwiches and variations of which. Lobster rolls, lobster rolls, lobster rolls. So what's the difference between a lobster roll and a lobster sandwich then? So you use something uh, a lobster roll like its shape is longer, so it's more like almost a hot dog shape. Um, so you'll see like baguettes or croissant style buns, but usually it's like a hot dog style bun. Whereas a lobster sandwich is where you get like two pieces of bread, you know. Yeah, it would yeah. it would just kind of fall fall apart. I, I mean, they, they do have lobster clubs in Nova Scotia, like a club yeah. sandwich with lobster instead of instead of like other stuff. Yeah, um, but yeah, the roll is basically think a hot dog with like one piece of bread that's like kind of cut but not fully all the way through. Because the lobster has to sit there, right? So you don't want it to fall through the middle of the bun as you're eating it. Right. Well, let's 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 get things back on track. And uh, what's the weather like in Chicago, Johnny? Oh, Jesus! That's back on track. <laughs> From food to the weather. All right. Well, Simon, you'll be glad to hear that the sun has now appeared. Uh, so it's it's sunny out the window, and it's probably going to be like stupidly humid again today. It was really hot and humid yesterday, and I wasn't happy. So I'll try not to be too surly here today. Uh, no, it's it's really it's it's very um, hot and humid as it's supposed to be in summer. So right. well, I, I I think I asked that this this week because um, you've you've been hello you've been you've been on a different oh, podcast, boy. haven't you? Hello. Oh, Simon! Oh, don't say I've disappeared. Not again. You're winding me up, aren't you? I'm still there. <laughs> uh, you know, I came close to good to having to bleep myself then. Um. We can't hear you, Simon. No way. Seriously. Oh, 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 oh you're back. <laughs> are you, are you, you're just winding me up, aren't you? No, no, no. no? Oh, okay. All right, well... <laughs> I don't, even though you just said you're not, I'm not entirely sure I believe you. Um, but anyway, let's 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 move on. Um, and I've I was going to say the reason why I asked you about the weather uh, was because you were on a there's something strange going on in the background there. Um, but I asked you about the weather because you were on a podcast, weren't you, Johnny? Yeah, the, the other week. Um, in fact, you were on the Grainy Days podcast, I, and that was the very first thing that they asked you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing okay. because the the uh, smoke alarm is going off in my in my flat here, so I probably should go see why that's happening because it's going to probably keep doing it. So it's I'll not going right to stop, is it? Okay. No, hold on. I think we'll. <laughs> I was going to say we'll take a break, but uh, you you, ne- you never know. Um, I know. Let's let's talk about you, Perry. Um, and uh, you've been back for a week. Have you been Have you been gassed uh, this week? I have not. Uh, we managed to get through a weekend without any tear gas getting fired, so that's nice. Um, I mean, I finally like mustered up the energy slash courage to go out and shoot some of these protests again because it's been a little bit weird recently because 
like people are worried about what the authorities are going to do with any photos. So the, the general vibe has been a little bit less photo friendly. But after the cops got really heavy handed, basically every time there's any kind of like protest or rally, which is pretty much a daily occurrence now, um, there's just there's press everywhere. So I actually felt pretty comfortable um, going out there and just sort of either being in, in and among the crowd or just, yeah, with the press. Uh, so that's cool. But it, but the, the, the actual photographers out there, the press photographers are, are the real heroes. Those guys have balls of steel or, or whatever the uh, like female equivalent of balls of steel um, is because they're getting some amazing shots. And I can't imagine how many times those guys have been tear gassed already. Uh, it's, it's incredible, and uh, you've posted a, a, a few shots with the uh, with the Leica King of Boca uh, lens as well, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I went out and shot. There was a protest literally in my neighborhood, like outside my window. Um, so I went and shot that. I, I used that lens just because it was the default lens on my on my um, camera. But I have to say, yes, the whole. Uh, a couple of episodes ago, and not many episodes ago, we made fun of its nickname, the King of Boca, because supposedly its Boca is only nice at like at f five point six at medium distances, um, which is you know oddly specific for Boca. But but I shot it, it was like overcast, so I needed the light, and man, like the pictures do look really nice at f five point six at around four or five meters. No, they're, they're, they're great shots and uh, I, um, I'm not going to dwell too much on, on those things because we do have a guest this week mm -hmm. uh, but before we head back over there are you, are you back with us Johnny? I think that means he's not <laughs> okay um, I think at the moment I'm going to take a little break and uh, and we'll come back when Johnny has returned Okay. Right. The house didn't burn down by the way I'm okay. I was going to ask, but I'm trying to be quiet. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. It, it, I don't know why that thing went off. So, well, as as you can hear, Johnny is back. Um, Hello. And and before you you ran off that, I was just referring. Well, we've just had a little chat with uh, with Perry there, but uh, back back to you, Johnny. Um, you were a guest or the the star guest on the Grainy Days podcast last week, weren't you? I was. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, we, we had a nice chat about a whole bunch of stuff and they let me ramble on about things and yeah, it was cool. It it did sound like it was, I, I, it's actually the first time I've listened to the show. So is it always about Fuji, Fuji digital cameras? Is that what <laughs> I the show's think about? Only when they know that Simon will be listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and in his defense, it was also about rod and all panoramic cameras. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, why, yeah. Why? Why Nikon sucks? So nothing. Right. We so completely new material. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you if you want to hear everything you've ever heard Johnny say before in the last yeah, like right, uh, if you want to hear my months. if you want to hear my stump speech in a different format in a different place, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there were actually no there were there were some things that I hadn't actually heard you say before. Um, but uh, and actually, there was some really good detail on the your, your methodology for how you get the the look of your photos as well. So, um, well worth taking a trip over there. It was it was a, it was a good show, and uh, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was it was great to hear somewhere else. Um, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. So uh, on that, we've we've had a relatively long intro there, considering uh, we we do have a guest, but uh, we we didn't really get a chance to finish. 
talking last week, so we just had a little catch up there. Um, so this week, um, in the, sitting quietly in in the background, uh, we have Edward Noble. Hello, Ed. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on. Welcome to the show, Ed. And uh, I've uh, wanted to get you on for for quite some time, and it's been a matter of like we've we've had so many things to actually do. And uh, and uh, it was it's great that you uh, agreed to come along. Now, uh, those of you who are not familiar uh, with Ed's work, um, I think he he became he certainly came to my attention uh, with his work on in the photography with classes lenses group um, for two kinds of work. Um, one is his uh, bokeh panorama work, which is excellent, and the equally excellent. Um, infrared work um but um before we go any further i think it'd be a good idea if because you can tell people more about yourself than i possibly can so uh ed perhaps you might want to tell us you know a bit about your your photographic journey and how you get how you got into adapting lenses and how that led you to doing weird and wonderful things sure yeah um i i guess it's probably easiest to start with um what I do, and you'll kind of understand uh, after I start with that. But um, so I've been in the video games industry for about 20 years. Um, I started out in uh, Leamington Spa for a company called Codemasters. Um, and while I was working there, although I had been into uh, film photography when I was younger and in college, um, at that point, digital had just started coming out. And I hadn't been into photography for a quite a while. So I had dropped film after I left college and uh, I decided that it would be a good idea to get into digital because of uh, texturing uh, 3D objects uh, for work. Uh, so I bought my first digital camera back then, which was about the year 2000. And that was a Fuji. Uh, it was, it was rubbish. It was a little um, bridge camera. I think it was a 6,900 or something like that. And I absolutely hated it. It was completely horrible. Um, but it did get me into photography and it sort of spiraled into what will end up being my inspiration for classic lenses. Um, a few years later, I moved to Amsterdam and uh, I kind of got into photography a bit more as kind of like an escapism from work. And uh, we used to go out on photo walks, wandering around the city. And um, a friend of mine, Italian guy, um, convinced me to get into classic lenses. He was shooting a Canon 5D at the time. And I think I had a Nikon D2H, something like that. Much harder for me to adapt classic lenses than it was for him, but I gave it a go. And I, I have to say, it's probably mostly his fault that I got into classic lenses. But um, after I basically the my movement from Fuji was that I hated the bridge camera and I wanted an SLR desperately, but digital. Um, and the only thing that was really available was a Fuji S2 Pro, I think it was. Um, and it used Nikon mount. I didn't really like the camera that much. I mean, it was great you're having a proper SLR again. But then I um, was kind of persuaded to move into Nikon completely. 
and I got a Nikon D2H, which at the time was quite cheap. I bought it secondhand. Um, and it was great, but I really wanted full frame. Um, so I ended up switching to Canon to have a 5D myself. And then when Nikon came out with their first full frame in the D3, I switched to that. And I kept that for quite a few years. And then I switched to Sony because I was completely sick and tired of the uh, the size and weight of the Nikon D3, the pro Nikon cameras. So I decided to go completely crazy, and I switched to Sony. And uh, I also, at the same time, uh, had it converted to full spectrum because I was getting really interested in infrared at the time because I had, I think it was a, a Canon 40D that I had converted, and that was purely to infrared. And when I switched to the Sony, I realized that I could I could kind of have the best of both worlds. I can have full spectrum, so I can shoot color, infrared, and everything. Uh, but it was a huge gamble. Um, hey, hey, Ed. Yeah. Uh, just want to quickly jump in for any listeners who are not aware, and also myself. What do you mean by full spectrum, and what's the distinction between like full spectrum, infrared, converted, normal? Okay, so most cameras you can you can shoot infrared by just sticking a filter in front of your lens. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're stuck with usually quite long uh, exposure time, so you need to be on a tripod. Most subject matter is kind of off the table, uh, like portraits and stuff like that, because the shutter speeds are just too long. Um, so the fix for that is to have your camera converted, and it basically involves taking off the hot mirror that sits in front of the sensor. Uh, which blocks off UV and infrared because all digital sensors are inherently sensitive to both UV and infrared, mm-hmm. but they they block it off natively because it basically it makes your white balance much better. Um, the more you block, the better it becomes, and this is why a lot of newer cameras, because over time it's just gotten more and more aggressive. Uh, a lot of new cameras block infrared completely, so you can't even do that. So <laughs> it's it's difficult to recommend to people. Now, just to try infrared by buying uh, an infrared filter, because you always worry that they'll just throw the money down the drain and they won't even be able to use it at all. I've done that a few times to people recently, and I always have to say, look, be careful. Try and Google your camera and see if anyone else has tried it, because a lot of times it doesn't work. It actually doesn't work with Sony's. I think all of them, all the Sony A7 range. So those you have to get converted in some way, shape, or form. The difference between... Uh, infrared and full spectrum is that with infrared it basically blocks off all color and uv so you can only shoot infrared and then you can pick the wavelength that you like to shoot but you're then stuck with it although you can add filters on top if you want to go higher wavelengths mm-hmm. um, but with full spectrum you're literally opening your camera up to everything the downside is that you need to use filters for everything which can be a little bit annoying and expensive Cool. Um, yeah, thank you. That 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 that's super clear uh, on sure. what the distinction is. Um, but basically, switching to the Sony, I mean, as you guys know, mirrorless cameras it opens up uh, the ability to adapt classic lenses massively. I mean, even compared to Canon, Canon is probably the best SLR to have, I guess. Um, but at the time, I was on the Nikon D three, and Nikon is just awful for adapting lenses. Um, 
and yeah, once I, once I hit Sony, I just kind of tried everything. And, uh, one of the main reasons for that is that infrared is really good with older lenses because of hotspot. Um, so if you can adapt older lenses, it's not only cheaper, but it's usually much better image quality, mm. obviously depending on your classic lens. <laughs> so, so was, you, I think you've, you've, you've sort of said that. So is 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 it a case then that older it was the being able to use older lenses was it was one of the drivers so that you could actually get the most out of your your ir work was was ir effectively the the main driver for you get for getting into old lenses no that was completely lucky i actually had no idea at the time what made uh good infrared image quality uh i mean hotspot's not the only thing that destroys infrared image quality but it is the main one so, Ed, Ed, when you say that hotspots are sort of what ruin uh, images most for infrared, what does that mean and, like, what does it look like? Um, it's, it's not something that always affects uh, infrared photography, but in certain conditions, uh, it's really bad. Uh, it's really bad if you are um, facing away from the sun, shooting a clear sky, for example, because clear skies in infrared are generally very dark. So if you have a dark area um, in the middle of your frame, but then you have bright areas around the outside, a classic uh, thing for that is if you have any kind of sunlit foliage around the outside edge of your image. And basically what happens is any brightness from the frame uh, becomes amplified in the middle where it shouldn't be. And it's, it's all to do with uh, the light reflecting off of the coatings because the coatings are not, built properly for infrared. So instead of absorbing or reflecting uh, stray reflections out there, they get reflected back in. And it's also made worse from uh, digital cameras because the digital sensor is reflective. Or not only the, the, the surface is reflective, but the surface of every layer, usually there's three or four, are reflective. So each one of those is reflecting the stray light back to the rear element of the lens and then it comes back down to the sensor again into this nasty spot where you you shouldn't have any light basically is so, that the same effect that you see on some uh like infrared photos using film where you know like trees are a very popular subject for infrared and sometimes you get this yeah. like intense glowiness uh no the glow that you used to get classically with infrared film is because of the uh is because of the film layer itself and I think that's that's generally considered quite a, a pleasing effect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's not really the same. And digital doesn't really do that either. I mean, you can add it in post, um, but but no, it, it's, it's something that really only happens on film. And it's probably one of the big advantages to shoot film in infrared, if you can. I mean, there are a few infrared films still available. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the uh, another good thing to talk about would be when I first had my uh, Sony converted, I pretty much had no money left. I bought the camera. I, I had it converted, which isn't cheap. And then I realized, oh, damn, I've got no money left. And I think this was another thing that really got me into classic lenses because you can get some incredible bargains. I knew I wanted something that was close to 50, relatively fast, not too big. And I ended up getting the, um, a lens which you guys have mentioned before, the Konica 41.8. Um, mm. And it's a, 
at the time I thought, wow, I've really lucked out. This is an absolutely fantastic lens um, for hotspot and for infrared. It's pretty good, but it's actually one of the worst Comco ones. Uh, it's still better than so many other um, modern autofocus lenses. Uh, so it is a really, really good cheap option to start out with. And I'm glad I had it. I still use it to this day. Um, but Konica lenses in general are fantastic for infrared. Um, oh, interesting. There, to be honest, there's a few. I, I've recently discovered that the older Olympus lenses are also really good. Um, and they're also nice because they're really small, much smaller than old Konica lenses. So when you, when you say old, older Olympus, you talk about just OMs in general or the older silver nose versions of the OM lenses. Uh, yeah, I think most of the ones I have are the silver nose ones. I think you can generally tell the older ones because, and maybe you guys can correct me on this, but I think the older ones have a letter before the Zuko brand. So um. they dropped that, I think, eventually. Um, but it used to be like G Zuko or H Zuko, depending on how many elements they've got. Um, I've, I must admit, I've not actually noticed if they if they did do that. I didn't think they had, but you've, you may well have, you might be ahead of me on that one. But certainly, the older ones can easy, be easily identified by the the fact that the 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 front edge is is polished instead of painted. Uh, yeah, hence why we call them uh, silver nose as opposed to not silver nose those, <laughs> uh, and uh and it's the 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 silver nose uh, lenses are single coated i believe compared to multi -co well actually i think there's a there's a bit of a crossover period because i think some of the okay. uh, uh non-silver nose lenses can also be uh single single coated as well so it, it's not quite a hard and fast but certainly i think if you see a silver nose and it will be single coated so I, I guess that's that's one that's single coated the lesser coating is is helping you with your infrared i guess yeah I and uh so. oh, sorry go ahead no 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 i, I that was pretty much it <laughs> I, i'm just going to clarify that the um the the letter nomenclature before the zoico uh, -huh. uh it, it didn't end with the silver nose i'm holding my uh om 28 3.5 right now and it's got it's not a silver nose but it has the g zoico so i think simon's right okay yeah yeah i mean it definitely uh yeah, i think it has to be something to do with the the coatings um i've noticed a bit of a trend with nikon f lenses as well like the the older uh non-ai f lenses seem to be better than the k version um and they seem to be slightly better than the before they went to AI. You can see a little bit of a trend if you look at my hotspot list, but it it's still a little bit broken as well. There are some standout ones in each. I think I think it might be just worth mentioning there. You you've just said something that doesn't get doesn't get said very often at all uh, when you just um, said the K version of, uh -huh. uh, of Nikon lenses, and that's. Uh, uh, I, I I first came across that by completely by accident uh, because I I bought a, a set of lenses at an auction and yeah. thinking that they were uh, AI lenses and because I, I looked at them and thought oh well, that's good they're not they're not pre AI um, because I was after AI lenses yeah. and um, bought bought them bought them back and I realised 
oh, <laughs> these these are not AI lenses. They are pre-AI, but have the same bodywork, if you like, yeah, the same yeah, bodies yeah. and design as the as the later AI lenses, and quite possibly in some cases they're probably the same optics. Uh, but they only uh, occurred for a relatively short period. I think there was only about maybe a year, maybe two years that these oh, really? lenses even existed. Um, so uh, hence why you don't really get many people talking about them but they they can catch people out such as me um that uh, they think they're getting an ai but it's uh, it's still a, a pre-ai which means that the um on the mount at the rear of the lens uh, mm. it's not cut away uh, in in places to allow the auto in the in indexing to work that's a probably a, quite a cack-handed way of uh, de describing it but it's the um, the architecture of the rear of the lens is is exactly the same as a pre-ai lens which means that you can't just go ahead and just like put that onto a, a modern uh, nikon dslr without potentially breaking your mount so uh so yeah so i just thought i'll, I'll point that little uh, bit of the k out there yeah, it, um, I think you're right. It's, it's because they have the rubber focus grip, right? You kind of assume that they're an AI, but but they're not. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that was um, one of the things. I had a few people ask me, like, which version of the Nikon lens shall I buy? And I, I tend to make it easier and just say, get the one with the metal focus ring, because I know damn sure that's definitely a pre-AI. Mm. Usually right. the F version. That's it. But I think that the, the, the K lenses do have updated uh, coatings compared to the, the old the older lenses. So yeah, yeah. it's probably best as I say, I think just aiming for those those all metal lenses makes more sense for the uh, for use with AI. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that, yeah, that's pretty much what I used to sort of aim people at. Go for the oldest one possible because they've got the least advanced coatings on them. And that's usually the best for infrared. Yeah. <clears throat> well, well uh, we, we talked a bit about infrared and I think we'll come back to infrared uh, sure. so, but I, I, I do want to talk about your um, Boca Panorama or Brenner's method uh, uh -huh. uh, photography um, which uh, is going to happen because you, you, you'll be using particularly fast lenses mm. but I, I've, I've seen you uh, engaging in conversations with people about uh, um, about the relative um, not so much focal length, but uh, aperture, and uh, some of these shots you come in have, have got like a sub f one aperture in in terms of equivalency and things like that, and that's always led yeah, to yeah. debates. Yeah, <laughs> um, it does. Yeah, and um, so I was going to say, if you perhaps you might want to just talk a little bit about what these bokeh panoramas are, or Brenners or whatever the uh, the correct term is is for these, uh, what they are, and uh, how how you do them. I guess the, the correct term is a little bit controversial. I tend to favor something like Boca Panorama purely because it's neutral and doesn't claim that someone invented it because they didn't really. I mean, I, I started doing the technique about 10 years ago, and I think Ryan Brenneser did it about 12, but then plenty of other people have come in and claimed that they did it way before he did, and I'm sure that that's true. Um, so I, I don't know. I just It seems like such a simple technique anyway because it's literally just a panorama using a fast lens that it doesn't really feel like you need to shove someone's name in front of it anyway. But that was, that was my general thoughts. And that's why I went for the kind of neutral naming on it. But um, yeah, so the basic principle is um, find the lens with the largest aperture that you can. And that's not, not the sort of lowest F stop, which I'm sure you guys know. Um, but 
dividing your focal length by your your f-stop to see what your physical aperture um, uh, diameter is. Um, so find out the biggest one that you've got of that and then shoot a, a sort of multi-row panorama, as some people like to call it. Um, and, I mean, there's a lot of advice, I would say, for people to this, like try and shoot as close as you can, usually kind of uncomfortably close when people start out with this technique what they tend to do is they tend to if they're going to shoot a person for example they'll frame the person in in one image and then they'll shoot around them and then once you get your final stitch image the person is just a tiny little element in the scene it, it can work sometimes depending on your background um but if you really want to push the effect you kind of have to to get sort of really close to the subject between sort of two and three meters usually, I would say. Um, and uh, what lens did I start out with this? I would have been, although um, I'm not going to dwell on it because it's not a, a classic lens. I started out doing this with a, a Nikon 85 lens because I was on the D3 at the time. Um, another nice uh, aspect to this technique is it doesn't really matter if you're on APS-C uh, with this technique, because although it involves you shooting a few more images, um, the potential of the effect is exactly the same. Because uh, really all that matters is the lens that you're using and not really so much the sensor. In fact, you could argue that the smaller sensor actually increases image quality because it tends to remove uh, some of the less desirable uh, sharpness from the sides, but also mechanical vignetting, uh, which oh, yeah. can stop the, the the panoramas from stitching quite so well. And also you'll get weird shape, you know, sort of bokeh circles, kind of all random angles, um, which I get all the time because I'm on full frame now, but it's just, well, yeah. The, the trade-off is that it's easier on a larger sensor. It's, it's interesting uh, that, you, yeah. uh, that you mentioned uh, about not going for the widest f-stop. Um, mm. And it's more about the physical size of the of, of the aperture. Um, uh, yeah. So what, what's what's the thinking behind that then? Uh, what I meant there was that the actual f value doesn't matter. Like for example, if you're on a, like a hundred and thirty-five f one point eight, um, that's much larger aperture aperture than say. Uh, um, an 85 1.2. So don't dwell so much on that F value, but more the physical aperture size, because that's the actual uh, sort of key to the effect. So yeah, that makes, so that makes sense. So what you're saying is like, um, because you calculate the F stop by dividing the focal length by the actual physical size of the iris, that yeah. when you're, when you're stitching these together, it's the physical size of the iris. That's more relevant when you're calculating the equivalent F stop, right? Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. what gives you your sort of the, yeah, the sort of the, the shallowest depth of field. Because although normally you would say, oh, well, yeah, it does, but you're going to have to back away because your your lens is more telly. Well, with bokeh panoramas, you don't because you can just shoot some more images, and you can still end up with a twenty mil or a twenty four mil equivalent once you've stitched, um, and then your sort of equivalent. Um, uh, f-stop or well yeah your equivalent lens is going to be something like a 24 mil 0.5 or something like that but yeah as, as you point out it it's kind of controversial because people go hey that doesn't exist 
Like, what are you talking about? Um, right, but in strictly mathematical terms, that yeah. that's what like the F number expresses, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I have a page on my website which um, helps with the uh, the equivalent aperture of your final stitched uh, thing, and you can also work it out backwards. So if you work out what your physical aperture size is, and you've worked out what your your final um, uh, focal length equivalent is, you can then just divide that by the physical aperture size, which never changes, and you will end up with your sort of approximate uh, f-stop. So do you calculate, uh, this is getting super nerdy, but we like to try it. Um, <laughs> and this bit, yeah. <laughs> do you calculate it, though, based on, on focal length or field of view? Um, always correspond perfectly. Field of view, I guess. Yeah. I, what I tend to do is I tend to start with how much how much bigger the final stitch is compared to a single image. Uh -huh. And then the multiplication value for that, you basically just divide each of your, your values of what lens you used and, and use that for your aperture and focal length. Oh, cool. And, and it makes total sense what you were saying about um, APS-C working better because, I mean, I'm just, I'm just like thinking about a, even a, a, a normal pano um, mm. stitch that you might do and, and, you know, things like vignetting or weird edge aberrations, yeah. uh, make it difficult. So does that mean therefore that, you know, you want basically like the most well-corrected lens that you can get, um, in order to do these effectively? Cause, cause I'm, I'm not quite clear on why you would say that if the, if the image quality is better on APS-C because you're getting like the middle part of the, uh, image circle, mm. why is it there then easier to actually do the stitch on full frame as you mentioned uh, it's purely easier just so that you don't need as many frames to take so it's it's pure like workflow in the field oh okay and for me that only makes um uh, a difference because i tend to shoot handheld um some people shoot on a tripod with a panoramic head i mean you can shoot on a panoramic on a tripod with no panoramic head if you want to but it, you can run into problems um and if you if you have that setup it's it's pretty easy. I mean, whether you're shooting 50 images or 200, it's not so bad. But when you're doing it handheld, some of these lenses are kind of heavy and you don't, you don't really want to take 200 images on the hand-holding whilst trying to guess where your nodal pivot point is. Um, so I tend yeah. to find it easier. And I, I've, I've seen someone recently, actually, uh, and I've never tried this, um, uh, doing the images on... Um, on a Fuji GFX Ooh. with a full frame lens, because obviously uh, Fuji native lenses are not really that fast anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of uh, full frame lenses, a lot of 85s seem to actually project to the Fuji GFX sensor right to the corners. Um, and obviously that's going in the opposite direction. So you're much worse aberrations, much worse mechanical vignetting. Um, but the stitching software seems to cope with it most of the time. So when you're shooting, are you using both, uh, burst mode handheld? No, um, I don't do that because uh, motion blur can be an issue, um, even okay. with fast lenses. Um, because on the longer focal lengths, if, if you're just kind of moving while taking a shot, it can be problematic, and yeah. I usually would rather guarantee that the stitch is successful. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and, and, you know, the cool thing, like I've seen, you know, your photos and I've seen quite a few people doing this method. Mm. Um, 
And the, the interesting thing to me about the effect as well is, um, you know, it, of course, it looks really cool and you get that kind of subject separation, but it mm-hmm. doesn't make the subject look like a miniature as you would when people are using like tilt shift lenses to get a shallower depth of field in a wider uh, field of view shot. No, not not very often. I mean, I if it if it happens occasionally, then I can I point to it and go, "Hey, that's pretty cool." But uh, no, it's pretty hard to do that. It's never that crazy, or not very often. I mean, where where do you? I'm I'm just thinking. You're shooting these. Are you actually generally shooting wide open as well when you when you're doing these, or do you stop them down a little, or do you depend yeah, on the shot? That's another sort of controversial thing. I mean, I have um. Uh, a Facebook uh, group for for the Boca Panorama. So there's quite a few people in there that sort of, you know, we talk back and forth. And uh, it's a very personal thing. I personally never stop down because I would much rather just push the effect as much as humanly possible. And also because you're effectively zooming out from any image aberration with the final stitch anyway, I find it kind of pointless. But that's me personally. A lot of people like to just stop down like a half stop or a stop just so that it's that much sharper in the corners or just less aberration or just less hazy i mean not all lenses are hazy wide open but some are um but now i'm i i tend to just uh i'm always going for the biggest effect i possibly can which is not necessarily the correct approach but i haven't I haven't managed to break from that yet. Well, it it, it certainly works for you. Um, I, there's a, a couple of things that, that jump out at me when when I look at your photos, and yeah. uh, I mean they they're all yeah the, the the composition is is exactly what you know what what people would would hope for. But there's always something different about the object that you're taking because there's a there is distortion there mm. because you're you're you are some of these parts of the, some of these parts of the images are, are taken from different angles from from others and then it's stitched together digitally to to form an image so you 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 can look at these and you, and there's you you see the object they're re, you know recognizable items but there's al- there's always a, a certain amount of distortion mm-hmm. that that I, f- I find really appealing it it sort of catches your eye because you're seeing the world differently mm-hmm. um, to how 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 you used to um and it, it, the, the other the other parts of this is, I suppose I'm noticing this a little bit more because I'm I'm shooting in, increasingly in large format, okay. which in some respects you're you're replicating large format, except you're going to to another extreme if you like. You're almost like going going past uh, large format because some this the effective speed of your lens is as great than large format will will, will give you, although paradoxically you know if you a, long, a larger format for a given focal length you effectively end up with a shallower depth of field uh, because you're using longer uh, focal length lenses um, even though they're not necessarily as fast as 35 millimeter lenses because you're shooting more at the telephoto end if you like yeah um, you end up with a shorter depth of field uh, natively if you like um, yeah, yeah, yeah but um just one one of one of the things that strikes me is you you take photographs of things that are just in the street um, <laughs> attractive things or just things and because of the technique that you've used they they become far more interesting as a as a result yeah it's kind of an interesting one that i'm always struggling with i tend to take a lot of subjects 
a, of a specific type. I mean, cars and bikes are a really good one purely because of their size and with bikes a little bit because of their complexity, because you can see exactly where the depth of field cuts through them. And it's, it's kind of fascinating, but I, I do try and push myself to, to take sort of more just normal scenes. I mean, the, the, the big limitation with bokeh panoramas is that you have to pick something that's static. I mean, if you're going to shoot a person, you need to ask them to hold still for at least a minute um, while you're taking the images, you know, at least relatively still. Um, with cars and bikes, you don't, obviously. But uh, And, yeah, I, I would like to, sh- to try and force myself to shoot just more nice little scenes that, uh, that I see, but I, I tend to get distracted i'd say by sort of cars and bikes a lot well, i was gonna say it's not it's not a criticism it, it's, it's, no, 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 it's yeah and it, it, my, my self-criticism I'd say. yeah i mean it's and and this is the thing that I've, i find really attractive about the process is mm-hmm. that is there are times where you're, you're you're walking along and you think I've, I've been down here so many times and i've photographed this i've photographed that and there's there's just nothing here and then you can go and look at your photographs that are taken in quite normal places of normal things, and you can make them look extraordinary. Yeah, it occurred to me uh, recently, I mean, it, in some ways it's obvious because you're sort of saying that the primary purpose of this is to kind of accentuate your your subject isolation. Um, but looking at that in a slightly different way, it's like as a photographer, depth of field allows you to force your viewer to see exactly why you're looking at the image, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, there definitely is something. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of addicted to it a little bit. I mean, that's why I take so many. But um, <laughs> it does feel a little bit cheap sometimes. I, I kind of wonder why I keep doing it because you see criticisms of people just with normal you know, photography, why do you have to go for this super, super shallow depth of field? Um, and I think that's it for me. It, it just, it enables me to sort of force exactly why you're sort of interested in the subject um, and extend that to the viewer so they, they know exactly why you're, you're taking it. Yeah, you, uh, you're, you're giving people no room for interpretation at all, aren't you? That's, yeah, because there's nothing else for them to look at. I mean, it's like, oh, could he be wanting me to look there? No, because it's complete blur. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ed, when I was looking through uh, your Flickr album earlier, uh-huh. um, the, the photos are really cool, but you also seem to have um, like quite a bit of gear porn there. Yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, old film cameras and stuff. There's some things I want to ask you about there there later. Um, but sure. one one picture that jumped out at me was a picture of your setup with I think it was a Sony A7 with a Canon FD eighty five one two. I think the lens was okay. Um, and then you had an external viewfinder on top, a twenty four millimeter Leica external viewfinder. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, so that was something I started to do purely for the bokeh panoramas because you know, in a little bit in the same way. Um, you know, when you're shooting film with a rangefinder, you can't get a feeling of what your Im- final image is going to look like with a bokeh panorama. Mm-hmm. You, know, there's, you can look at a, a tiny portion of it, but you'll never feel what that image is going to look like until you've processed it, basically. Um, and framing it is is super hard. So I tend to shoot pretty much the same amount of shots, um, which is between 30 and 40 for an 85 mil lens. And it kind of came out to like, uh, between 24 and 35 mil after you've stitched. 
Um, so I found it super useful to be able to to see your scene through that that viewfinder. So although I, in that particular image, I stuck it on the top of the camera and it looks very, I don't know, like an all-in-one package, I almost never do that. I tend to keep it in my pocket if I even bother taking it out. But it, it does really, really help, especially you know when you're starting out with a technique because it's, it's so easy to, to miss the corner few shots and you're like, ah, I can't get what I wanted now. No, to, to me, that that setup makes a lot of sense because the whole bokeh panel thing, like I wouldn't know how to visualize yeah. um, taking that final kind of photo. And when I saw this setup with the 24 mil external viewfinder on top, like to me, that makes complete sense because then you can see your frame and yeah. then it kind of it guides you on like where to start and stop uh, your various images, right? Yeah, ex exactly. It's, it, it's uh, super hard to do otherwise because when you're just looking at a portion of your image, you're like, oh, where's the other corner? You know, it, it doesn't really work. And then, I mean, I tend to recommend people either do something like that or use their mobile phone. But uh, I don't know, mobile phone is just not as easy. I, I really do like the external viewfinder for that. Yeah, you don't have to hold an extra thing in your hand while you're doing it as well, right? Yeah, and then you've got to try and turn the camera app on with one hand, and it's a pain. Uh, the viewfinder is so much easier. Do, do you have to do you have to do anything different when you're shooting like a static subject, like a car or a, a urban scape, versus a, a moving subject? Yeah, well, I tend to not do too many moving subjects. You mean like people, like portraits? Yeah, I see people. I, there's like uh, shots of trams and stuff. Okay. Uh, well, if it's something like a tram, they're pretty tricky because they only stop for about 20 seconds, at least uh -huh. here in, in Gothenburg. Um, so I tend to rush them. I, don't, I still don't do burst. I try to move, stop, and then click, move, stop, click. Um, yeah, but it is really tricky to get something that big um, all the way through until they move again. And especially because there's people coming on and off the tram. I mean, moving subjects is so much harder, mm -hmm. um, which is, is why I tend to shoot static ones most of the time. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it is, uh, it's tricky to do with people as well because most people tend to freak out and the, the one thing that they all do is to stop blinking and you kind of want, you need to say, okay, you can blink, but don't, don't move your head. Don't, don't move too much. Um, and I've seen people use a few different techniques for this, like, uh, because I tend to go from bottom left corner all the way up to top right in a zigzag motion. Um, so it's not easy to tell the person oh, I finished now. You can, you can keep going, even though I'm still taking a few shots. What some people do is they tend to go out like a spiral. So they cover the person and say the first 10 shots and then they say, you can move now. And then they keep going with the rest of the panorama. Oh, that makes um, sense. It does, but it's really hard. So I've never actually managed to get that to work. So, uh, in, in, well, talking of um, moving objects, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Perry picked out a uh, an article uh, that you did for, uh, what is it? Uh, oh, I've lost the page now. Uh, go to the I top. It was, it's uh, Sony, Sony Mirrorless Pro. Yeah, and in that there is a photograph. It's uh, a bokeh panorama, and it has three deer grazing. <laughs> so, how did you pull that shot off? Okay, that was uh, 
that was pretty tough. So I I saw a bunch of people um, photographing. This was in Richmond Park in London. And uh, I think I went out there specifically with the intention of looking for deer, not to take bokeh panoramas, but just to take random shots. And I had a 135 F2 lens on me at the time. Um, and I thought, maybe, I, maybe I'll give it a go. And so I basically walked in in the same way that I take a lot of nature shots. You kind of walk in, take a shot, go a bit further, take another shot, just in case they must, they move out of the way. And then you think, well, that was as close as I'm going to get. And I, I managed to just keep getting closer and closer. And I thought I could just take a book of panorama with them because they're kind of grazing. They're moving very, very slowly forward at the time. Um, but I thought, yeah, I can probably pull this off if I shoot fast enough. And I kind of, I set the camera up with all the right settings because with, with uh, this, you, you have to set everything to manual, manual focus, manual aperture, manual everything. I mean, if you're shooting JPEG, you need to do white balance as well. And I had it all set up and I, I basically rattled through the panorama and I realized because I'd been, I was kneeling down at the time and uh, it would take me quite a while to actually get through this panorama. And I thought I'd, I'd done okay. They'd moved a little bit. I thought I'll, I'll probably fix whatever it, you know, messes up in 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 post in photoshop uh and it worked out okay but at that point i suddenly realized that i was about three meters away from a deer with horrendously large antlers and i could not move i couldn't stand up <laughs> because my knees were just completely locked and i was like oh this could end really badly um so yeah i i, I did just about manage to to kind of get up and not panic but it kind of suddenly struck me that I was so engrossed in the technicalities of what I was doing that I wasn't really aware of the danger. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think it it wasn't as many as a lot of the panoramas. I think it was about 14 images on that one. And it did mess up. I had to Photoshop uh, part of the deer's head. You can actually see his right eye in it twice. (laughs) But uh, you you don't really know. It's like I kind of covered over as much as I could, and I went, "Ah, that'll do uh, um, now, now you said it, I can see it, but I, I wouldn't have seen it without you saying it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I probably just shouldn't say it, right? Yeah. Um, In fact, it looks like I can see three eyes, actually, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there might well be. Yeah. Um, but that was infrared and bokeh panorama, which I, I tend to like mixing as well. Hey, hey Johnny, is there, is there any kind of wildlife in Chicago you think you can pull this <laughs> trick off with? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe maybe some really large rats I could try, but they move pretty quickly. Yeah, we have rats here as well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, recently I have uh, something that kind of crosses the the two techniques, if you will. Um, is I, I managed to get hold of uh, a Zeiss uh, Planar eighty five mil one point four lens, which is great for infrared and great for bokeh panoramas. So the fact that I like to combine those two techniques, that lens is super interesting and. You know, I can talk about that a bit more because it's actually a classic lens. Yeah. Yes. So, by the way, is is, is that the uh, the contact Yashica version as well, or is that the the later? Uh, it's the later. It's the ZF one, which right. I guess is, is just for the Nikon, isn't it? But um, yeah, so the Z series. I don't know exactly how they they called that, but it has like a silver metal front to it. Yeah. So it's the, just, it's, I was just going to say, it's just interesting there that it's actually a a modern. Um, it's the modern version of that lens and it's still good with in- infrared. Yeah. The, the reason for that is it's actually built for infrared. So um, 
for a short time, I think it was between 2008 to 2014, Zeiss kind of tried out this thing where, because I guess they saw infrared kind of picking up a little bit, that they thought that they would bring out a special version with special coatings. And it has, it's still a T-star coating. I, I don't exactly know what the difference was. I don't think they'll tell anyone. But it's, uh, instead of the usual color, it's kind of blue. And it's the same on the rear element as it is the front. Um, and it pretty much reduces your hotspot to zero. I think it's the best hotspot lens I've ever tested, or at least one of the best, which you would you would kind of assume, right? Because it's it's specifically made for it. You've just just said that, that uh, well, there's a few things I want to talk about this lens, but you just just triggered something there, um, and that's the uh, one of the cyclop in fact the cyclop lenses, which are oh, yeah. night vision lenses. Yeah, I haven't actually tried those. Yeah, well, they they have blue coatings. Oh, do they? They do, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it seems to be a thing, at least with um, the Zeiss lenses I've seen, because uh, I also have um, a lens which I posted on on your group yesterday, I think it was, uh, next to the to the to the planar, um, and it's um, an old spy lens made for German Stasi. <laughs> And it has a, a blue coating on it also. And, and as far as I know, they made it for infrared because I guess they wanted to see inside people's hotel rooms at night <laughs> without them knowing. So it's a little bit more nefarious. But that, that is also um, built for infrared. And that one's actually focus corrected for infrared, which the planar isn't, because apparently that's really expensive. How, how many... Um, sorry, how many... How many did they make do you know because like the one you posted has a serial number of like four yeah it is difficult to tell i mean i've spoken to somebody who owns the actual production version the one i have is a prototype so in theory it shouldn't have been sold um so it would have been one of the early ones that they sent out to people to review and then eventually they they ended up selling it officially so the Official ones had like a locking mechanism on the aperture and focus ring because they were mostly made for industrial use. I think Zeiss actually have an industrial range of lenses as well, and that's what they, they had that differentiated them was this locking mechanism. So the fact that mine doesn't have a locking mechanism and has that stupid low serial number means it's a prototype, as from what people told me. I think it was when I posted that on on your group that someone came in and said, that's a prototype. You shouldn't actually have that. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Give it back. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, ah, no. <laughs> Wait, so so what is it? Uh, I, I don't know if you've tried this, but what does it look like if you stick that version of the planar on um, like a, just for, and, and try it for normal photography? So from what I've heard, I actually haven't tried it because every time I'm using it, I just want to use it for infrared. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, given a bit more time, I will give this a go. But I, I well, I did, I, I did try it, but I didn't actually take any images of it. I think I was trying to take pictures of my uh, friend's cat that I was looking after. But uh, it looks like it actually hotspots in color as a blue circle, huh. which is interesting. I haven't actually figured out a reason for why that might happen, but uh, it's interesting. <laughs> so is that is that a blue circle in the center of the frame? Yeah, it doesn't always do it you have to be pointing it sort of very high dynamic range scene for it to come off like you've got some real you know bright outdoor scene in the background you know when you're kind of struggling yeah. it's all whited out and, and then it kind of 
it starts to happen. Because, because that, that sounds like a, a problem that I don't hear many people talking about it now, but a couple of years ago in photography of classic lenses, there was lots of talk about certain lenses having a um, getting a blue patch or mm-hmm. some kind of patch in the in the centre of of the uh, of of the image that just wasn't there, and um, and the 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 common denominator. Uh, between these lenses and, and it was used in the method that you just described there with the uh, particularly bright scenes uh-huh. and um, and the the view ultimately was that it's due to the rear element being pretty much flat and then okay. light is reflecting off the element and then back onto the onto the sensor it sounds very similar mm, so I'm just wondering if the rear element on that uh, that that lens you have is is uh, flat Maybe, maybe I'll I'll check it out next time I have a look at it. Yeah, if you if you can if you can feed back into into the group, that that'll be that'll be good to hear. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I um, another lens I have was very good, and I won't talk about it as much because it is an autofocus lens. It's not built for infrared in any way, but it's good for infrared. And someone told me it might be because it has a, a like a rear window on the lens, so maybe it's because the rear element is either not flat or it's further away and it's kind of covered, like framed out. So I have no idea whether that really is it, but... Uh, so yeah. what lens is that? It's the Sony Zeiss 55 1.8 for the Sony A7. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, the, the, the long one. Yeah, it has like this little sort of flat window at the back. I don't, it's not an element. I'm Wait, pretty sure so, the element is further in. So why, why would that uh, window make a difference? Because, I mean, that lens is outstanding, right? It's an, it's an autofocus lens, so we yeah. don't really talk about it. But I know, I know at least one of my lenses, um, I think a Zeiss 85 F4ZM has okay. the rear window as well. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly why it would do it, but someone pointed out that that might be the reason. And I was like, okay. Maybe. It'd be interesting to know what just the general reason is why why those lenses have even got it because yeah the the vast majority of lenses don't have it. Another lens I can think of is the I think it's AIS um, and there's two versions of it that you've got the eighty to two hundred Nikon Nikkor. Oh yeah. um, And the the professional version as they as they uh, dubbed it um, has has that. as you say, that, that window, that cutout, so it's a, a rectangular rear end to the lens. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, 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 gonna, it's, it's obviously going to be doing something at the, at, at the top, it's stopping some kind of reflections or some unwanted light from the, the top and the bottom of, of the lens. Yeah, um, sort of cutting out stray reflections, right? I mean, um, the, I think the one that you mean, the, the, the Nikon one, it's, like, it's just like a frame, right? It doesn't have glass in it. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, because the Sony one has glass, which is even more weird for me. Because it's like, why would you put a bit of glass in there that's not an element? You know, it feels like it would sort of reduce your image quality. Hmm. It must be doing something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, (laughs) I don't care. It works. (laughs) Probably. Um, But yeah, I have a bunch of other lenses that I really love for... uh, uh, the bokeh panoramas. I think my favorite one is the, the Canon FD 85 1.2 L. Um, 
and people always think that I'm I'm kind of joking every time I say it. It's L, you know, as I am boasting because it's like, oh, it's the pro one. It's like, but the L is the cheaper one. Because <laughs> I don't know if you guys know, but if you go for the non L eighty five one point two, it's like double the price. I didn't even I didn't even know there were two versions. To be honest, it's just older. I mean, there's, there's nothing different about it because um, people who then buy that one because it's it's I guess it's a little bit more rare. Um, they're like, oh, it's a spherical because it says a spherical on the front, but the L is a spherical as well. There's actually no optical difference to them, but yeah, they like they like saying it because it says a spherical on the front. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's 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 probably my favorite lens because it's so small. I mean, even with the the adapter on mirrorless um, for a one point two, it's it's really really small. I mean, for for the sort of bokeh panorama effect, it gives you a seventy one mil aperture. I mean, the only way you can get bigger than that is if you go for a hundred and five one point four or the hundred and thirty five one point eight, and they're both massive lenses. Mostly because they're modern autofocus lenses and probably better corrected, but um, but yeah, I really love that lens because it's it's so neat and small. I mean, if you think about the fact that it has a seventy-one mil aperture, the filter thread on the front is seventy-two, so there's only a one millimeter difference between the actual aperture and the uh, and the filter thread. It's a very neat lens that, and uh, yeah, I tend to like walk around with it because it's just not too big and not too heavy. There's there's something about those older, um, well, well the FD lenses, but they're not not all the FD lenses, but they're really the the top mm. FD lenses. So yeah, the eighty five one point two, the the one three five f two. Yeah, um, I remember we talked about before, didn't we? Yeah, and the the other one that comes in, comes to my mind is uh, that that I have is the uh, the the two hundred millimeter f four macro. Okay, uh, which is a incredible lens. Uh, really, I, I need to use use more often, but that that's just a, it, and it's good at distances as, as well as it's uh, good at good at close up, and it's a one to one two hundred mil macro lens. It's absolutely fantastic. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah, that sounds like one I'm going to have to try out one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, 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 I don't know. I don't know how big the uh, the uh, the iris is. Uh, the, uh, how big the iris is. So, but uh, I don't know how good it. It should be good anyway because you know f four at two hundred mil. Is has got a, a a very small depth of field anyway. The, the problem is just how many shots you're going to have to take to yeah to 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 fill fill your image really to make a proper sized image. Yeah, I tend to draw the line at 135 yeah. because I tend to like a wider result as the end stage. I mean, if you're happy shooting just nine images on a 200 mil because you only want a 100 mil equivalent, then yeah, that's fine. Um, but that would give you about a 50 mil aperture, 200 f4. So it's the same as a 50 mil F1 if you look at it that way. So I've been quietly kind of listening and looking at your photos, Edward, and I'm I'm really kind of fascinated by them because they're, I mean, they're so different from, you know, the way I do stuff personally. So I'm always interested in, in things like that um, and getting someone else's kind of insight on how they work. And I mean, what's really interesting to me about the, especially the, the Boca panoramas is... Yeah the element of time in the photo because obviously they look like a single moment, but it's, you know, it's taking you a little bit of time to make them because you're taking several photos and then compositing them sort of yeah. into a single moment. But there's obviously some time that's elapsed right during the yeah, making. Yeah, yeah. And, 
Really good the, question, actually. Yeah. yeah, the one that really jumps out at me is the one that Perry mentioned earlier. It's one of the um, the train shots, and it's the one with the conductor, and it's a night scene, and there's some people sort of departing off this tram. And to uh-huh. me, I I'm really fascinated by that one because you know obviously it sort of looks like a single moment, but it's it's a longer moment, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I I to me I find that really interesting and also like it's almost not really a photo in that it's not about a single moment it's about it's something that you really could only have created digitally which is like this longer ongoing moment of time that is kind of compressing time to look like a moment if that makes sense and it so i don't know i'm kind of like i'm kind of going down this philosophical rabbit hole (laughs) of the fact that digital photography and photography are really two different things fundamentally. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering about the relationship of time and the images and how you think about it, because I'm also looking at another series of photos you have, which are the ones you call motion on your website oh, where, yeah. yeah, where it's, again, it's, it's, it's a single moment, but it's an elongated moment, but you're seeing the motion of time in the photo. Does that make sense? It's like a yeah, yeah, the same yeah. amount of time maybe as some of the Boca panoramas, probably I, shorter, but I, it, yeah, yeah, it's definitely shorter. I usually, well, it, I mean, like a yeah, second it, or so, it's right? definitely shorter, especially in processing. I mean, processing yeah. the panoramas is, it can be quite time consuming. Yeah. And it, but, <clears> I, I guess that's what kind of where I'm going is that the, the difference between photography and digital photography is that the digital, images are sort of made for the viewing screen, if that makes sense, right? It's like processed to be to be viewed in a different way. And I mean, I do find it really interesting. I mean, I don't, I, you know, I, it, it's, so, I mean, I, it's a weird philosophical question, but I wonder how you think about time in your images in what, or is it not really part of what you want to represent? Is it more that, um, I, I guess is it more about that final result that's kind of processed to look like a single moment? Does yeah, that I I would say it probably is more like a technical exercise to see if I can capture yeah. something. Um, well, at all because I mean the, the problem with the panorama is if it, you if you don't capture something to make it look like a a single moment, you generally got something with with errors in it. You, I mean, um, a lot of these images where I would would fail to 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 get the final result would be ones where you have people cut in half um because the stitch took one of at the bottom of somebody and then when it got around to the next uh portion they weren't there anymore but have you ever thought of leaving that <laughs> or is uh, that- i i have on occasion i don't think i've put any on my website but on Flickr, i think i had some with someone's foot in it um just uh, as like an amusing uh sort of element to it but um but uh, no i mean uh, the, the the motion series that i did is much more about that i wish i could incorporate more motion into something like panoramas but i haven't mm-hmm. figured out how to do that yet yeah and i guess that's what i kind of what i'm wondering is if it might be a i don't know it might be something to think about as something completely another direction is that 
I, I almost would love to see the same thing, which is the element of time within some of these Boca Panorama, even if it means that some things look out of place yeah, 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 or broken. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I don't know. I'm just really interested in in where the 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 uh, to me like the where it all breaks down to where the moment starts to seep back into the image. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So you start to see the passage of time in the making of what looks to be a single moment that isn't a single moment. I, to me, I'm really fascinated by that idea. And I'm kind of like trying to imagine what it might look like. Because I think that, you know, uh, maybe a good way to approach that would be to shoot a scene which you've always wanted to shoot as a, as a, as a panorama, but thought, I can't because there's too much motion in it. Right. But then just shoot it anyway. And right, right. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I, I have honestly never thought about it that way. And that is now really interesting to me. I'm like, yeah. hmm, I could do that. I mean, the, the whole thing that you're talking about, jo- um, Johnny, here in terms of uh, like you're, you're making a digital and film distinction, right? But but I think the process to me almost feels like um, how you would, for example, take like a, a series of multiple exposures on film and with the, with a, with a thought of blending them in a very specific way. Right. Um, obviously, it would be a huge pain to do this on film, but like you've planted like the same kind of idea in, in my mind too of setting up like a rolly cord or something somewhere and just taking multiple exposures of literally the same scene mm. uh, to get that <laughs> passage of time going. Because normally, when you see uh, multiple exposures, they are sort of two different scenes blended together. Um, whereas the bokeh pano <laughs> is like different chunks of the same scene and then blended together to give a more uh, a different sort of depth of field effect. Right. But from a kind of creative and artistic point of view, you can kind of combine the ethos of both of those. And I think use the technique. So you get like the visuals, the visually striking depth of field effect of the bokeh pano, but also that, as you mentioned, the element of time, but with the mindset of like a, a multiple exposure that you would do on film instead of something, you know, weird and serendipitous. Yeah, that, that sounded pretty good to me. I mean, uh, I'm already sort of thinking in the background, like, hmm, how could I do this? <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I've got, I've got to say, just just listening to this, I'm thinking I quite fancy doing this on film. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's 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 yeah. The principle is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you've got to digitize it, mm-hmm. um, and. Yeah, there, there could be a, there, there are going to be a, a few technicalities that are going to be uh, difficult, and I, and I certainly wouldn't attempt to do uh, the the picture of the, uh, the 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 tram and the uh, the driver looking looking over down his mirror and and seeing the people getting off as as tram, which I think is, I've I've been just just looking at that photograph for the last five minutes. Uh, just think about just how good that photo is. Yeah, yeah, um, right, it's, right. It's it's, it's fantastic. You know, it, it's, it's for me that's like street photography at its best, and, oh, and you've done it as a panorama. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's it's incredible. Um, but yeah, I, you, I, go on, sorry. I was just going to say, I mean, in a weird way, you know what it reminds me of, and maybe people have seen these photos, and I'm just I'm trying to pull one up real quick. Um, it, did David Hockney did those uh, Polaroid. Uh, basically, he used the exact same technique as the Boca Panorama technique, mm-hmm. um, but he did it. he did it with Polaroids, and they're, you know, obviously instant photo shots and analog and you know the things don't line up exactly right um and 
they're very pieced together and they, you know, it's, I wonder if it wouldn't look something like that. If David Hockney hasn't pretty much already done what we're talking about right, right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a couple of really striking images that make me, uh, think of this. There's one, it looks like kind of a street scene with a couple of trees in it. And I mean, I could even, you know, post a, a link to these, but yeah, I mean, it, I don't know. It's there it's fascinating to me that there might be some like middle way to do that mm. digitally. Cause I mean, he's sort of using the analog border of, you know, the Polaroid film. So they look like kind of pixelated cells. Yeah. You know. I, I kind of like that because, um, um, on occasion where I would, uh, try and explain to, to people how I would be making these up, I would kind of fake it by adding a almost Polaroid esque, uh, border. Yeah. And then just manually aligning them on a, on a really big sort of canvas in Photoshop, just roughly, just so you get the impression of how they're aligned. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's something yeah. about that which I really like, the, the fact that it's so obvious. Instead of it being more seamless and someone doesn't really know how you made it, to just, just kind of throw it out there and say, look, that's how it, it is, you know? Yeah. It's, and no, I, and I, I almost wonder if that wouldn't be interesting on your kind of in your how-to areas is like, all right, here's the uncleaned up. Mm. raw stitch with the you know not cropped um i don't know yeah i think it could could be really interesting because i mean i've done some i wouldn't call them boca panorama stuff but i i did a lot of panorama images the one time i spent a lot of time doing this i was in ireland and i was doing these massive like super panorama format images where that like if i printed them they would be like two feet tall and you know 10 feet wide um Mm where it was, uh, you know, just, uh, these long horizontal panoramas kind of stitched together. And what I really liked them kind of most was before they were cropped and they had these kind of weird uneven edges, you know, before mm-hmm. it got just super rectangular. So, but I mean, that, that's kind of what I, I guess I found interesting was the breakdown of time within trying to make a single image. That's not a one image, but multiple images put together, you know? Yeah. 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 Anyway. Um, it's also interesting that you mentioned the large prints. Um, I, I've tried to print some of these images fairly large and, you know, like a meter and a half across. Oh, wow. Um, and the effect, it jumps out more and more at you the larger you can print it. Because normally with, with an image, um, you know, it doesn't really matter how big you print it. You know it's kind of built to be viewed at a certain distance so there's no point kind of just keep wandering closer and closer to the canvas right yeah with a bokeh panorama obviously because it's made not just from a a resolution point of view but from an effect point of view um i think they would really be interesting to just kind of keep walking closer and closer to it just to see how the effect would change your perception of the image yeah and I, i i think that's interesting too because like i said i think one of the big differences between digital photography and you know photography is that like I, I feel like a lot of digital photos are made with the the screen in mind. They're very pixel, yeah. you know. It's they start as pixels and they're displayed as pixels, you know. And I yeah, yeah. I, I wonder. I think it would be fascinating to see some of those things printed like standing in front of them, really large, because to me they're such a departure from true reality that when you see them in back in reality as like a a physical thing you stand in front of, I think they take on a really different character and and almost like in a good way. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not saying it's bad that they're made to be viewed on screens. I mean, my God, I don't make 
darker prints anymore. Screw there's that. There's something about screens um, that's so restrictive, though, isn't it? Exactly, and that's what I'm wondering about. Is like that it, like even a big screen, you're sort of limited by the dimensions. Yeah. Of, of how big that can be, whereas if you made a physical print, it would have. I feel like they would have like a different type of impact as um, objects. Cause yeah, then you're yeah. kind of confronted with the, you know, the departure from reality in a very different way. Like it, to me, you don't, you could just take it at face value on a screen. Whereas yeah, as a physical thing you stand in front of, I feel like you might really get lost in that, in that larger image. Um, and it takes it back to an interesting place of, you know, that departure from reality. Like it becomes more obvious yeah. in a weird way. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've always wanted to print one of these out super, super large, but I just never wanted to, you know, drop the amount of money. Right. Yeah, that's totally the thing. <laughs> but I, I think it would be really cool to try that in this case because um, just to build on that, what Johnny was saying, when you're looking at a screen, right, um, a, a lot of photographs that are like mediocre look really good when they're really small. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you increase the size of the image, like I think it's the really, uh, really good photographs that hold up, you know, th- that they're almost better when they're huge compared to when they're small on a screen. Um, and, you know, the, the bokeh pano effect is like, it's such a striking visual effect. But I think if you have it printed out large, like things like the distance that you're standing um, from viewing it will have a big impact on like yeah. the viewer's experience. Um, and I think that would just like transform the, the visual impact of like the way that you would look at and interact with the image. Yeah. I think it it would totally be worth printing these out pretty big. Yeah. I'd love to do it. Just need a, a gallery and a bunch of money. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's, let's, let's move things on to, um, infrared. Okay. Because um, we've we've touched upon the the, the technicalities of uh, of inf- infrared lenses, mm. and uh, you've got a an equally compelling um, uh, portfolio of photos uh, taken in uh, in infrared, uh, largely in color, uh, but there are black and white infrareds there as well. And you've also got mixed spectrums, and you've uh, uh, on your on your site you you explain some of the differences between. Uh, different filters and and, and such. Um, uh-huh. I, I, this is this is an area I've always I've always fancied having a go at doing doing stuff on infrared and you, and you see things with false color and 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 all sorts of things. I've never really understood what Earth's going on um, with how you, okay. how you produce those 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 kind of images. So perhaps if you can give us a, a bit of an overview on what you actually you've taken your photograph with your with your wonderful IR lens and uh, you and your and your cameras converted to to do all this kind of stuff so what what comes next um i just point out uh, very quickly to anyone who might be also interested that um i am very uh enthusiastic about having very specific lenses for this but you really don't need to if you're trying it out i mean it, it's nice to have one that doesn't hotspot but most lenses are generally pretty fine so it's not it's not too big of a deal. It's not like you need to go out and buy a special lens for infrared, unlike UV, which is a completely different animal, and we're not going to get into that. Um, but uh, I for infrared in general, the reason why I like or, or I kind of chose to do a full spectrum conversion 
uh, is because I do like both color and black and white infrared. Now, in theory, there's nothing to stop you from taking your color infrared and just turning it black and white, of course. Um, but the reason why it's different is because a color infrared image, which generally has two colors in it for separation, is much lower down the spectrum. And it, it, it has separation because you're getting a mixture of red and infrared. So it's like from uh, 590 uh, nanometers up to uh, about 1200. Uh, whereas pure, well, I say pure, it's it technically referred to as near infrared, not proper infrared, because proper infrared is much higher up the spectrum. Um, but what your digital camera will be sensitive to, even if you have it converted, is about 1200. Um, and if you go above red, then you're only just going to get black and white. So uh, the false color one, which you mentioned, Simon, is basically the when you've got a mixture of red and infrared. And you you don't really get anything that represents any kind of reality out of it. And, and what false color is, is that you, once you've got your white balance as, as sort of good as you can get it, you, you swap around your, your red and blue channel and it gives you a blue sky and usually by default, like yellow foliage, but you can then push the yellow using the hue adjustment to whatever else you want. Um, so if I just... You just said there about swapping uh, swapping channels there. So can you just explain what, what you mean by that and how you would do that? Uh, well, if you're doing it in Photoshop, um, which is the way I usually do it, um, it basically, if you open up the channel mixer, um, you can pick a specific channel out of RGB um, and you can swap red with blue by going to the red one and saying that, it is only influenced by blue. There's like three different sliders for each of the other channels. Same for red in the other way around. Yeah. Um, yeah, it sounds kind of annoying and technical to do that, but you can set up an action to do that very quickly, like a, just a, a button click, and it, it's pretty simple. To be honest, the hardest part about any of that is that Photoshop doesn't really have a very good uh, range of white balance for that it because it bottoms out at like what is it 2000 on the temperature and, and you kind of need about 1000 so it involves uh creating a custom profile for your camera which basically offsets your white balance by a bunch and then it, it, it can then fit within range and then you can almost just use the color picker on your on your sort of white balance when you're doing the yeah okay. uh, the raw conversion to you pick something and it comes out pretty close and then you can open that up and then uh, swap your channels around. Recently I've heard that there is a, a way that you can swap the channels in ACR as well, Adobe Camera Raw. So you can actually have it in the raw editor already flipped, which would be really useful, but I haven't uh, tried that myself yet. I always do that in the next step once I get into Photoshop. Um so, yeah, it's completely meaningless. The blue sky is just kind of like, I guess, a happy accident that people have figured out. If you swap the colors around, that's how you get it. Um, and I tend to, when I do a hue shift on the on the foliage to make that whatever color I want, I tend to have to do a bit of a hue shift on the blue as well. So it turns out to be a bit more of a natural sky color. Um, skies tend to come out a little bit darker um, than reality. Uh, I don't know if you're looking at the mixed spectrum one that I've got on the sort of homepage of the photos that it's got three 
color, uh, three images on it. One's black and white, and then the middle is color, and then on the right-hand side is the false color, infrared. So you can see the sky is a little bit darker, but then you can also see that the black and white one is much darker. So that's the benefit of going to full black and white, is that the contrast is kind of just amped up. And I, I guess the kind of quandary to that is that you would expect to have dynamic range issues with the contrast being so high, but it actually it's it's not. It's uh, It actually fits into your dynamic range way better than any color image will do. Just, just on the, I was earlier on. I was just looking at the the, the London um, photos that you've you've got, which are, which okay. are great. Um, and I'm just just going on to the uh, the mixed spectrum one now. And uh, yeah, and there's a there's a shot there that uh, you were just talking about. I think where it's a landscape shot with uh, valleys and mountains in there. Mm. And on the, on the left, you've got black and white. Then we have a, a normal shot, uh, which is very which is dull compared to the uh, one on the left and it's also quite boring compared to the one on the right which is the uh, the, the 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 color infrared um uh-huh. and I'm, I'm just wondering was was that taken on the same camera that that normal shot in the middle yes right so so you what's what's the filter arrangement there between I, I take it did you take a filter off on one or was or did you literally take an it, you take a normal photograph that's been on this converted camera uh-huh. And, and then you do something to the pictures. Is it... uh, no, it's it's three different images um, aligned because they never yeah. do properly align. Um, the the middle one because you always need a, a filter of some kind with full spectrum. I mean, you you could just shoot full spectrum if you want to, but it's a mess. I don't think anyone really likes that. Um, it just looks like it's heavily kind of magenta casted rubbish where it's, it's influenced by UV, color, infrared, and it's just, yeah, it's a mess. Also, your focus is way off because you can't, you can't deal with all three spectrums. But, um, yeah, so this one was using a, an external hot mirror. So in the same way that when you, sh- you know, shoot normal photography, your hot mirror is on the sensor. In this regard, the hot mirror is now in front of the lens. Um, they're a little bit difficult to come by. Uh, I started when I started off, I, I thought that I could get away with uh, a UVIR blocker or UVIR cut filter. I thought, well, that makes sense, right? It's blocking infrared and, and UV. So it just lets through color and, and that will give me a color image, but it doesn't really work. Um, you still get quite a heavy magenta cast. And it, it's apparently what somebody told me was that it's, uh, it's to do with the fact that a hot mirror is supposed to absorb infrared light, not reflect it. Um, I, I was going to say we, we've, we've. I don't know if I missed it earlier. Well, you, you keep saying, talking about hot mirrors. Mm. Um, I think I missed 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 the uh, what we're talking about here because we're obviously talking about mirrorless cameras now. Yes. Um, but we're talking yeah, about mirrors. They uh, they refer to the um, the filter that sits in front of your sensor on a normal camera that blocks out uh, infrared and UV as a hot mirror. So. Yes. It's, even when I'm using that as an as an external filter, I call it a hot mirror. I think that's probably incorrect. Right. But and the, the 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 you mentioned way 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 at the beginning that the uh, filter in front of the Sony sensors is like super thick, right? Yeah, yeah it's it uh, it cuts off pretty much all infrared as far as I know. So if you just stick a an infrared filter in front of your lens, you won't really get an infrared effect. So when you, um, I mean, first, I, I got to say, like, it takes some serious dedication, I think, to 
when you're buying a new camera to just like go and get it converted. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, especially five years ago when it when I didn't know it was going to work very well. <laughs> but um, that that conversion, I assume, involves removing that uh, filter, right? Yes, in part. So, just out of curiosity, uh, if you remove that um, infrared filter at the front of the Sony sensor, mm-hmm. does that also improve its performance with uh, like wide-angle rangefinder lenses? <laughs> yes, it does. Um, so, for example, um, one of the conversion cam- companies that I have dealt with in the past, Kalari um, Vision in America, um, they actually have a specific um, filter replacement service that does specifically improve that. So you can have that uh, on, on a normal color camera, so they just leave the hot mirror as is, and they just replace it with a much, much thinner one. Uh, and it improves that, or you can have that as well as your um, full spectrum or infrared or whatever you want. So they do it in combination. Okay, that's cool. I mean, you know, way back, even even back in the days when I was just a listener of this podcast, this is an argument that, you know, um, Carl, Johnny, and Simon used to have all the time about what's causing the, the crappy performance of rangefinder wide angles on a Sony. Okay. Um, and, and, and like, it's, it's that piece of glass, but, but anyway, apart from that, um, have you, have you shot much infrared on film? Cause I noticed from your flicker that you've got like some pretty sweet film cameras. Uh, a little bit, um, but not a huge amount. It's, it's so much easier when you have a digital camera yeah. that uh, it tend not to go back, but there is a uh, part of me that still kind of likes trying to do that. I guess um, you don't have to deal with reciprocity failure on, on digital, right? Yeah, well, no. In a horrendous way for infrared as well, because you're dealing with, yeah. what is it by default, like 10 stops or something? I'm asking you. I, 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 know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I've never <laughs> seen it. I, I know people who have, and it's, it's, it's like the bane of their existence, right? Because you've got to do longer exposures anyway. Yeah, and then, of course, if you're using a like a 720 nanometer infrared filter, which I, I think is usually the recommended, you can't see through it, so you have to set up on a tripod anyway. The exposure times are going to be long anyway, so it just yeah. becomes exponentially harder to do. Um, right, and unless you have like a really thorough data sheet in advance, like, there's no way of really knowing yeah. how long you need to expose for. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I will I, the one there's a couple of workarounds for that. I mean obviously the the exposure time is still uh, uh, tricky. But seeing through the lens, I mean obviously you can use a rangefinder or a TLR um and then you can just stick the the filter on the lens that you're not looking through. I mean that kind of works mm. as long as you can actually, you know, handhold the camera for the shutter speed you need it. It can work. Yeah. Um and I tried to do that a little bit with my TLR, but I was still dealing with like, you know, half a second exposures and stuff. So not still not easy, I would say. Oh, and the other thing is that uh, infrared film is extremely sensitive to light. So they tell you not to change it outside. Uh-huh. Um, like, n- you know, so you pretty much have to go inside in a super dark room to change it. So if you if you want to shoot two rolls of film while you're out, it's like, well, forget it. Because you're going to fog one of them. Yeah, yeah, um, that makes sense. So it's just so much easier on digital, eh? Yeah, and uh, also um, going from DSLR. Um, so my first camera that I had converted was a little compact mirrorless one, um, uh, and it was okay. But I wanted something better, so then I went to the 40D Canon, 
Um, and it had live view, which is it's kind of okay. But going from a DSLR to mirrorless cameras is just complete game changer because you can see the spectrum that you're shooting in in real time in the EVF and the rear screen, which is just huge. Yeah. Um, you also, with DSLRs, you have focus offset because infrared focuses at a different distance. Right. Um, so if you've noticed with old classic lenses, you tend to have a little infrared marker on it, right, for where the offset is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gauge. Uh, and I've noticed with mirrorless that that gauge is often quite poor. <laughs> it's quite, it's just wrong. Uh, but apart from that, um, mirrorless doesn't have that offset issue because with DSLRs, the problem is because your focus is done not on the sensor plane. Mm. But mirrorless is done on the sensor plane, so there's just no focus offset. Oh, that um, totally makes sense, yeah. And it's so much easier if you're just dealing with an autofocus lens. Like, you know, for this multi-spectrum image, for example, I literally just hold one filter in front of the lens, click, hold the other one, click, hold the other one, click, and just fix the white balance and post and you're done. I mean, that's how I can get away with the, the clouds being roughly the same. They're slightly off, but yeah. Um, and, yeah. Um, are, okay. are you doing, are you doing any, um, when you're shooting some of these like infrared shots, are you doing any, uh, like, how do I, how do I put it? Sort of like colorization afterwards. Cause w there's one shot in particular, right? Mm. Um, like you've got this sweet black paint Canon P and Canon 51.2 black version, right? Oh, that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so the the when I um when I first bought this lens, mm. I remember that I went on Flickr and I looked up the Canon 51.2 LTM. Mm. One of the top photos that pops up is your shot with it of um it's a portrait and then it's like it's infrared and her eyes are orange. Oh, okay. And I, I didn't know that this was an infrared shot, and I I didn't even know I didn't know it was your picture at the time. So I remember when I saw this picture, thinking, "What the hell's going on with this lens?" So that's no, that's <laughs> yeah. sorry about it's that. A, no worries, no worries. But like <laughs> those orange eyes, is that like as captured, or are you doing anything afterwards? Uh, I mean, it's using the false color technique, so it's blue red channel swap and uh, a bit of a white balance hack in Photoshop because it's under two thousand temperature. Um, other than that, no, it's it's uh, it's because the color of the eyes it just reflects infrared. So oh, yes. the reason why foliage comes out yellow in infrared is because it's reflecting a lot of infrared. Right. So it's the technique you were talking about earlier with Simon. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I, I've noticed recently that um, people's eyes actually reflect different amounts of infrared. Um, and my wife just happens to reflect a lot of infrared, which is strange because her eyes are very dark and mine are super blue. Mine come out darker than hers in infrared, which is oh, weird. So, so, oh, that's super cool. So you could like take side-by-side -side portraits of people sort of normally and then in infrared. And the, the difference in sort of color and brightness of their eyes could come out totally different. Uh, it's a smaller change than in reality, but yeah, different still. Yeah. Hey, hey, can Ed? Can I ask you about this um, uh, lens hotspot list thing on Kolari Vision? Oh yeah, okay. Um, is this something that that you are like in charge of maintaining, or is it like a community effort? Uh, do you mean the one that's on my website, or the one that's on Kolari's website? Uh, the one that's on Kalari's website, but I guess on, on the one on your website would be one that you're doing, right? Yeah. Uh, so 
I mean, Calaris has existed for much longer. Um, I used to use it to tell me what lenses I should go and buy for infrared. Mm -hmm. um, but I had so many uh, inconsistencies, I would say, with the results on there. So the way that they do theirs is anyone can report them and they don't have to have any specific level of knowledge for infrared. And for some people's photography just don't show up with the hotspots that well. Uh, okay. It depends on a lot of things. It can also depend on which part of the, the world you live in, mostly depending on the angles of the sun and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I didn't really like it. It kind of gives a lot of misinformation. Um, right. And I decided to do something uh, a little bit more accurate because another problem with it is it, it, it tends to put lenses into two categories. Does it hotspot or doesn't it? Um, uh -huh. I found that to be again disingenuous because I found every single lens hotspots, even the you know proper pro infrared Zeiss lenses, they still hotspot if you push them hard enough. Um, right, that is apparently a, a very contentious issue. <laughs> Some people yeah. don't like the fact I that mean, I say that that happens. But your well, your your list is is much easier to understand because like that giant list, some some of the same lenses appear on both the good and the bad list. Yes. Um, so that that was clear that it was like crowdsourced. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, but it's it's interesting because like when I look at the list on your website um, or even that one, it it it's fascinating how lenses that I would otherwise assume were quite similar mm. can perform so differently, um, like on on this kind of hotspot measure, right? Yeah. Yeah, they do. Um... But, but I, also, yes, sorry, go on. I was going to say that um, I, I found that um, there's a few trends uh, with this, and it, it seems to be wider lenses are usually poor performance, uh, as are newer lenses, faster lenses, and zooms. Except for the Konica's, it seems. Uh, yeah, the Konica's were a bit of a standout. I mean, once I started to find a few really good ones, I, I wanted to find the entire catalog, and that pretty much is it. Um, mm -hmm. If I was to try and do that with Nikon, of course, I would just run out of money really quick. You know, you know, you know why I think this is the case? Because, I mean, it, uh, Johnny Simon, I don't know if you guys um, have looked at this list, but it, it, it's like every manufacturer is listed, and, and they've all got, you know, some some bad infrared lenses, some good ones. The Konica AR list is, A, very thorough. It's like almost, I think, every Konica AR lens ever made almost. Except um, the Fish Eye and the 28 1.8. Oh, yeah. Oh, the 28 1.8. Yeah, I want uh, that, but again, there's, it's expensive. There's one of those for sale in Hong Kong right now. It's oh, really? crazy expensive. Yeah, oh, it's like $1,000. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, the Konica's are they're they're highly rated across the board, yeah. um, and you know I wonder if that's because Konica used to make infrared film. Yeah, that occurred to me as well. Actually, I mean, all classic lenses pretty much uh, would include that focus offset for the infrared on the. Uh, yeah. So I mean, you could look at it and say, oh well, old lenses were more built for infrared in mind, and at a certain point, manufacturers went, oh, we don't care, we're just going to make them bad for infrared and you know to hell with the consequences but i don't think that's it the 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 fact that they made infrared film that that could have more legs to it i think yeah i mean that makes sense because like the fact that they to me that's the first thing that occurred to me when you said like the conica lenses are 
particularly good. I was like, oh, because they made infrared film, so they would want to optimize their stuff for it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite possible. I mean, even up to their, you know, apart from the fisheye, the widest lens that they've got, the 21 mil, that's still really good. Yeah. The performance drops a little bit, but it's still really good. I mean, it surprises me that some of the old... Um, uh, like really old rangefinder lenses perform well as as well. Like the the Canon yeah. fifty three point five Serenar is that um, that must be coated, but the lights Elmar is not coated, right? Uh, I don't know. How do you how do you tell? Can you see the coating? You should be able to. Um, Johnny, do you know the the lights fifty three point five uh, Elmar collapsible? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uncoated, right? Uh, well, it probably was originally uncoated, but, um, a lot of them are coated cause they were re they were coated after the fact. Yeah. You could send it back to the factory yeah. and code it. But I think if you look at the one that you've got and like sort of move it under a light, you should be okay. able to see what. Yeah. You should be able to, yeah, I mean, yeah. Usually you can just tell by the color of the surface of the glass. Okay. Yeah. Do you know what color it was? If it was coated? Well, it's, if it looks like it's it probably has a bluish cast, I'm guessing it would have a bluish cast to or it. Yeah, like slightly greenish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The un the uncoated ones would tend to look just like uh, like a reflection from a let's say a window if you're standing in yeah. a room and there's a way would okay. just look like kind of whitish, right? Yeah, yeah, it would definitely have a color cast. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, and it, it shocks me that the 51.2 Canon as well. The uh, yeah, that, that's okay. really high up on uh, on on the ratings. Yeah, that that shocked me. Uh, I did not expect that. I mean, I know it's an older lens, so I would it, I imagine less less coated, less advanced coatings. But uh, yeah. it can, yeah, like I say, usually faster lenses are not so good. Uh, although I did test the um, Konica fifty seven one point two, which I think uh, Simon you own, right? Yep, absolutely. But, do. Well, there you go. If you want to get into infrared, use that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, funnily enough, I've actually only just just picked up a camera specifically to use that lens. Okay. And it, it's the it's and that was because for the competition that we're going to be running soon, which we've also had an idea as to how we're going to give away this forty millimeter f one point eight. Um, we'll talk about that another time. Uh, but that uh, that Konica is is in Hong Kong now, um, mm -hmm. so we're going to see some amazing shots from that very very soon from from Perry. Um, but I, think I bought that uh, I, I bought that lens with a Konica FS1 uh, with with a view to actually the, the, the light seals were trashed on it, um, but it was a very nice camera. So uh, um, I've actually now learned how to change light seals um, <laughs> badly. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh but yeah i've uh, the, my motivation was specifically to use that 57 1.2 and run a roll of film uh, through it with with that camera it does look like a really nice lens um yeah and i've got double the excuse to use it now since it's so great for infrared yeah uh if but i need to that's the problem though for me to actually use it i need to have a, a converted uh, mirrorless camera. Yeah, you um, would, unless you can find some nice old Konica film to use on shoot your film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can, get you can also, too, so. you can also, um, if you can find an IR filter for it, um, I think JCH Street Pan, um, yeah. is, mm -hmm. is pretty usable for infrared. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there is other um, 
black Ilford and white SFX too. Yeah. exactly and uh there's another one too right oh the roly yeah i must oh, admit yeah. i was thinking for some reason i was thinking more about color um because he, i mean you used to be able to get color infrared film as well hadn't you yeah you used to but yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, that, that that really is like rocking all stuff, isn't it? So uh, yeah, so, I, I heard somewhere like it's like a nearly a hundred pounds a roll, and it's like twenty years out of date. Yeah, uh, no thanks. Yeah, I really fancy wow. that, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> I, should, I, think I, I think I still have a roll of that. I should look through my really. So, you could, yeah, you, you could retire on that now. Yeah, I have I have quite a bit of that that I shot. I have a bunch of you know slides. Um, shot oh, it's that. slide film, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's pretty neat stuff. There is. Um, speaking of, because uh, that's Kodak Aerochrome, right? Yeah. Um, I haven't got many examples of this on my website, but um, there is a, a filter that's made by Kalari now that enables you to shoot in roughly Kodak Aerochrome colors, which means more red foliage and. Um, blue skies but without the the channel swap so with a mirrorless camera or with a live view you can actually see it in real time without you know any processing at all and that's very cool yeah because normally when you're looking at uh what is essentially the 590 which is just a red filter um foliage comes out blue and sky comes out brown it, it's kind of pretty but it's not it's not usually the effect that you want to end up with Whereas this one, it's just like a normal white balance, just just whack it on, and it uh, gives you, you know, pretty awesome colors. It's a bit expensive as a filter. I think it sort of starts around a hundred dollars, but yeah, again, it's a bit like the mirrorless using mirrorless cameras for uh, for full spectrum. It's a bit of a game changer because you couldn't do anything like this before this existed. So. Pretty just, cool. just, just. I'm, I'm just looking at one of you. You, you got the Cyclops Optics STC clip filter um, on, oh, yeah. on one of your pages there, um, and I, I, again, I, I don't know if I've if I've missed this, but mm-hmm. is it is it possible to convert your camera mm-hmm. uh, to full spectrum and then use one of these clipping filters to convert it back to normal for normal use? Is yeah. That, Yes, the STC do a, a, a hot mirror that cuts off at 615 nanometers, which apparently is very close to what Sony stock is. And then you could just use it like that for color images. And then if you just fancied it, you could just rip it off and either put an external one on or put a different internal filter on. And then you wouldn't need external filters at all. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's quite appealing. Uh, because you know, just just having a camera that will only you know, there's a bit of a one trick pony if you like you've you've got to use it for IR yeah. is is a bit extreme isn't it so uh, yeah exactly and and that's why I intend to do moving forward because my Sony A7 is is pretty much on its last legs at the moment I mean it's done five years worth of service and about a hundred thousand shutters and it's it's Sounds a bit funny, let's say <laughs> <laughs> on my last holiday it started to fail. Um, like I would be taking these pictures of like this hot air balloon coming over the, uh, the, the mountains in Slovenia. And I was like, Oh, that's the, the prettiest thing I've ever seen. And the camera would just seize up and I'd be like, Oh, I need a new camera. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's getting on a bit. I, I think it's done pretty well, but, um, so yeah, I've just, I literally got my a seven three in the shop now 
having that converted to full spectrum. And the idea is that I'll give it a go using these internal um, STC clip filters and see how I get on with that. And then I go, oh, I won't need any external stuff at all. But the reason why that might not work for me is that I like to switch spectrums quite frequently and changing the the, the clip-in filter next to your sensor is a, yeah. often is a little bit, eh, I don't like the idea of doing that. Yeah. At least you're not going to get dust on your filter, though, on your on your sensor at least. Anyway. Yeah, there is definitely sort yeah, of. Just, you get it on your filter instead. <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the swings around it because I, I remember like justifying it like that to myself. Uh, and yes, while it's in there and you're changing lenses, you don't get dust on the sensor. It's like the the, the Canon EOS R, right? And the the blades go over when you turn it off. But Every time you change the damn thing, you're you're exposing it yeah. to way more dust. So yeah, swings and roundabouts. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, I I think we we need to start um, bringing things to a, a bit of a close. Um, and cool. it's it's been fascinating uh, talking to you. And uh, and mm-hmm. I think there's there's been some really thought provoking. Uh, discussion there about you know, things that we can go out and do and uh, which which is great when when that happens on the podcast i mean yeah. it, um, i think we all wanted to run out and take pictures of dead plants when uh <laughs> was was on last and uh now i want to take bo- boca panoramas and uh, everything i can so um thank you for the inspiration there yeah sorry about that by the way and thank you johnny for uh for the idea of uh you know the, you know the different sort of speed things with Boca Panoramas. I'm definitely going to be trying some of that out. Cool. Looking forward to seeing, uh, seeing those results. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you. Yeah, and and can, uh, can I ask you one last question? Sure. Um, if if there are any like inspired listeners right now, um, if you were to recommend one sort of budget classic lens to use for infrared, not for Boca Panoramas. Okay. Um, what would you go for? Uh, can you give me a budget and a focal length, or shall I just wing it? Uh, Simon, why don't you define budget? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I can already I can answer this question anyway, um, and that's go to Ed, Ed's um, site, and so that's edwardnoble.com and then forward slash hotspots. And you can you can see exactly which lenses no, that he's but, tried. But but he's got some lenses there that are because there's a designation B for budget, right? But there are lenses there that that the, you you guys would clearly define as budget, which are not marked budget, like uh, <laughs> that Konica forty one A, the Minolta forty five F two, etc. So yeah, that's. I mean, I usually put the, that denomination in because there was a non budget version of that lens as well. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily uh, mean it's of a certain budget. So oh, I see. Lenses. For example, uh, like a Nikon E series, for example, I put that down as a budget. So let's say fifty pounds or less. Is that realistic? Yeah, it is. Um, and uh, I know this may be a good segue for your competition, but I would recommend the uh, forty mil Konica. Although I did say it's it's one of the worst Konica ones, it's still a really good lens for infrared. And the focal length is brilliant. I well, love on, on your on your scale there. It's a it's an eight point two out of ten, which is one yeah. of, as you say, which is one of the lower. Yeah. Uh, in fact, actually, no, it's the lowest conical. It is the lowest one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's re- yeah. Actually, I'm just going to try and click on links. I can't remember how many 
uh, samples I have on there. There is something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there's there's some samples on there, so you can see what uh, it does give. Yeah. Well, the, I, I think the the simple thing is just point point people at conicas really, uh, because most most conica lenses are very affordable. Uh, That's true. Yeah. Uh, the one yeah. downside of that is that conica lenses don't work on SLRs. Hmm. I, th- I think most most people that come and listen to our podcast or go onto our Facebook group end up on a uh, mirrorless camera at, at some point. <laughs> it's just a trajectory that they go. And then the, the second trajectory is that they end up buying buying film cameras to go with the beautiful lenses that they've uh, they've bought, which is pretty much the uh, direction I've ended up going. I, I got to yeah. say, you know, the, the Konica lenses, the fact that they don't really work on, on SLRs um, mm. makes them all the better for uh, <laughs> mirrorless because, like, I'm delighted. Simon just sent me the 41.8 with an adapter. And I'm delighted at how small the adapter is because of the flange distance of those lenses yeah, compared to that's true. The giant obnoxious adapters that you have for like certain other mounts. Yeah, I mean, back when it was the first lens I ever had for my Sony, um, I remember thinking like I really wanted the Zeiss 35 2.8, um, but this lens it isn't much bigger. Um, it's over a stop faster, and it costs you like what is it like a tenth or less. Yeah. I mean, it's a no-brainer, really, because it's it's really pretty sharp. I mean, I'm not saying it's the sharpest lens ever, but for what it is, it's pretty damn oh, sharp. At, at f two point eight, um, it's really nice. Yeah, and I really enjoyed it as well for portraits. You get close up, and you're not worried about the edges too much. So portraits, I thought it was great at one point eight. Yeah. I, th- I think it's it, it, it. Yeah, you've you've hit upon a point. I think we may have mentioned it in the past, but it, it's a it's a case of yeah, the, the, it's a. It's almost a 35 millimeter lens. And when you just talked about the Zeiss, uh, the Distagon at 30, uh, the 35 Distagon, it's actually longer than 35. It's closer to 37, like the Mears. And okay. you actually um, take it. So it's, it's, I mean, I don't know whether the 40 is closer to being a 42 or whether it's a 40 or whether it's a bit, little bit shorter. I don't know. But the, the difference between the, that, that 40 and the Distagon in terms of uh, angle of view is, is tiny. And mm-hmm. that, extra bit of um, light that that allows to it makes it incredibly versatile and as as perry said you know when you've adapted it it just goes to be this about the same size as a normal lens would be sitting on a on an slr so it's it's win yep. win win it's no wonder it's going up <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I mean i i have three of those lenses um because i was using it as my test bed for uh, for the infrared hotspot data um, and it pre- it did what it, I wanted it to do. It tested, it showed that the test was reliable and all the charts came out the same. Um, so I have two spare ones now as well. <laughs> you sound <laughs> it, like it, Johnny now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's a really good little lens. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I'd recommend it to anyone who can use it. Okay. Um, right. I just want to do a quick bit of, bit of housekeeping now um, before we before we disappear. Um, and I just want to say thank you to those people that donated to the to the podcast via Coffee. That's uh, www.ko-fi.com. 
and just search for Classic Lenses Podcast if you want to help us out. Um, and because the guys uh, didn't have the information last week, uh, we've got a, a few more names on here, and one appears twice. Um, so I'm just going to quickly go through them there. We've got donations from James Thorpe and Brian Warworth. Thank you both. Uh, Nigel, a couple of weeks ago, uh, also donated and said, uh, great show, guys. Uh, so many interesting views. I was drinking coffee on the patio on, on the holiday cottage whilst listening. So uh, that was an idyllic scene, but he's back now and he's had a cataract operation since then. Um, so I hope you're feeling better, uh, uh, Nigel. Um, but you were able to uh, donate again and make another comment. Um, he said, Thought Perry, and this is about last week's uh, show, Thought Perry and Johnny behaved pretty well seeing they didn't have Simon's calming influence to moderate them. Yes, well, they just talked about lobsters. Um, and uh, Christopher J. May uh, also uh, has donated to us again and uh, said he missed a couple of weeks uh, due to due to life. Uh, thankfully, listening to the podcast like the classic, it's done CLP, and I, I thought listening to the clap, uh, <laughs> uh, listening to the CLP is helping helping keep me sane during the during that period so thanks jensen and, and thank you again uh, christopher all very very appreciated um so that that's it for uh, the the donations this week um not sure if there are any emails to go through there may be but i think we've we've run out of time to do any 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 of those now um so uh, ed uh, back to you um again thanks for being a great guest thanks for pointing us in directions we've never been before you're welcome. Thank you for having me. And uh, we've we've mentioned your website, but um, you're you're all over the place. So perhaps, and as in on social media and, and stuff like that, perhaps you might want to just give our listeners another run through about the places where people can find your work and potentially get in touch with you. Oh, I've got to remember what my uh, Instagram address is now. I think it is Ed underscore Noble for Instagram. Uh, Flickr, oh, that's Ed with two Ds, by the way. Uh, Flickr is just Ed Noble altogether. Uh, also, Ed with two Ds. Uh, other than that, it's just my website. And the Flickr? Uh, Flickr. Yeah, you're on Flickr as well, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the one I mentioned last. Ed, Edward Noble on Flickr. Um, and uh, yeah, just, just to quickly go over that website again that's edwardnoble.com and there's loads of useful information on there as well as as your beautiful photos so uh urge people to go over there and have a have, have well spend some time and, and check that out thank you simon right um right perry um any shout outs potentially in fact actually i'll knock this back to edward just in case uh, are there any shout outs because i didn't i didn't give you the opportunity to shout out anything to anybody uh, I haven't anything in mind, actually. Sorry. <laughs> I keep forgetting to, to ask, they say to our guests, you know, I might actually ask you about, about shout <laughs> So, uh, no, I've just dropped it on you there. Don't, don't worry about that. Um, so Perry, any, any shout outs and um, ways that people can follow you? Yeah. A quick shout out. It's kind of an odd one, but a quick shout out, first of all, to, to all of you guys, because I just got to say like how refreshing it is to sit down and have a normal conversation about, a hobby in photography while like it seems like the world is crumbling around us here in hong kong yeah. um so like a sincere thanks it's, it's really a highlight of my week since getting back um but apart from that also just a, a shout out to all the press photographers who are working out here in hong kong on the front lines because i don't think any of them have gotten any sleep in the last 
11 weeks and I, I don't even want to know how many times they've been tear gassed. So they, they are the real heroes in all this. Um, as to where you can find me, uh, I'm just Perry G P E R R Y G E uh, everywhere. Instagram, Flickr, and dot uh, com. Okay, and uh, Johnny, uh, you can follow me on Instagram at uh, Sisson Photography S I S S O N Photography, and you can catch up with me at Central Camera Company in Chicago uh, most days of the week, um, where I'm there doing the camera thing. Okay, and how, how can people get in touch with us and, and, and do stuff on Instagram and stuff? Uh, you can, well, on Instagram, you want to check out Best Vintage Lens. They're our Instagram partner, Instagram frenemy, as we like to say. Uh, we love you guys. Um, you can send us an email at classiclensespodcast at gmail.com. And you can, of course, follow the podcast and hear all the podcasts at uh, uh classiclensespodcast.com and we're on YouTube as well we are yeah you are yeah yes, sort of <laughs> yeah sort of that's that's exactly yeah yeah, <laughs> um, yeah we, I mean, we we're not recording this with audio um, sorry with video um, but uh, yeah the an audio version of this podcast will will go out in fact it's exactly the same uh, go, goes out on um uh, on on YouTube and uh, we were we were sort of having a bit of a laugh about that about the fact that there's uh, captioning available, which is really the the advantage of being able to listen to this on on YouTube because you can listen to us with subtitles. And yeah. uh, when, when we mentioned this last time on uh, when we had Eric Sluice on the on the show episode seventy nine, um, I sort of said, well, we talked about these these captions, and I, I just decided to just talk a lot about Ufta 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 um, <laughs> to see how well it, it ca- captured it. And uh, Matt Jones um, captured uh, that because he was listening to it on the, on YouTube, and he, he did the screen a screen grab of me saying that. And, uh, and he posted it in our Facebook group, uh, the Classic Lenses Podcast Facebook group. Um, and it, the caption was, uh, the magic doof doof idea. I just can't imagine how it can subtitle uh, was uh, how we managed it, which is not, not too bad, but <laughs> Ooftar Ooftar is doof doof. <laughs> you should do like Chinese whispers and keep doing that and see how it evolves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, um, so finally for for me, um, I'm uh, find find is what find is all in the uh, the Facebook group um, for the for the show, which is the Classic Lenses Podcast Facebook group, and uh, we also uh, pop ahead into photography with Classic Lenses. Um, I'm on Twitter as Simon Four, uh, that's F O R with not the number. Uh, Simon Simon Forster Photographic is my handle on Instagram. It's also the name of my website as well. And I've got an eBay store with lots of lenses. Uh, You can find the links to all of those things in the show notes, which you can find in both those groups I've just mentioned. And also if you go to our website, which Johnny mentioned earlier, which is classiclensespodcast.com. You can also hear me once a fortnight on the large format photography podcast as well, who I uh, do that with Andrew Bartram. Um, and interesting, the, the one that is just about to go out on Friday this week, uh, we had um, Jason Lane 
withers um, and Steve Lloyd from Chroma Camera but uh, I'm just mentioning this for the sake of uh, Jason Lane because he was with us back in episode 64 uh, for a really interesting chat about lenses and uh, and he was we've had a good chat with him again in the uh, in the LFPP as we call it um, more about dry plates and things like that but uh, we are going to get Jason back on our show uh, at some point in the future as well was uh, that was a great conversation we had last time and we're going to do something similar again um, and that's just about it I think uh, our music is by Kevin McLeod of incompetech.com and it's called Octo Blues um, so it'll be great if you can join us again next week and if you can be like Carl